0: Welcome to the AEM Education and Training Podcast from the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine and the AEM Education and Training Journal. I'm your host, Dr. Gita Pensa, and this is what we've got for you today. Most doctors I know are people who don't really love uncertainty, which is interesting given how much uncertainty we actually deal with in any given clinical day. And that's obviously a skill that we have, but have you ever thought about how you learned that skill or how to teach it? Today, we are speaking to senior author Dr. Dimitri Papanagnew about his team's new paper in AEM Education and Training entitled, Making Decisions in the Dark, Learning Through Uncertainty in Clinical Practice During COVID-19. Dr. Papanagnew is Professor of Emergency Medicine and Vice Chair for Education in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the Sidney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. He serves as Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Development at SKMC. He oversees the medical school's Health System Science curriculum, as well as the medical school's scholarly inquiry track in medical education. In his faculty development role, Dr. Agnew develops programs to address global faculty educational needs across the university. His research interests lie at the intersection of health system science, uncertainty in clinical practice, diagnostic uncertainty, and medical education, and we are thrilled to speak with him today. Don't forget to read the full text of this article, available open access from the publisher for a limited time. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Agnew. So nice to have you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure and honor to be here.
0: All right. So I'm excited to talk about this paper. This was a very interesting concept to me, thinking about how to teach how to deal with uncertainty. Um, How have we historically taught our learners how to deal with uncertainty in clinical practice?
1: Well, thank you for that question, and I think it's a great question. The truth is we really haven't, right? If you think about traditional design of educational experiences, if you think about assessments, we've always trained students for certainty, right? What's Mm -hmm. the correct answer on this multiple choice question or at the simulation center? What's the best set of interventions in this scenario? There's always a correct answer. There's always an absolute. And um, there's a disconnect when our students leave controlled learning environments and move into the clinical learning environment where there is so much uncertainty. And and it was that really paradox that got us to think a little bit more about, well, what are we doing to prepare students to thrive in context of uncertainty? And there's so many other things that kind of support this. Just think about the way that we have valued diagnosis, right? but there's so much diagnostic uncertainty. So really this was just um, a means for us to have a heightened awareness that there is a lot of uncertainty in the clinical learning and working environment and that we need to do a little bit more to think about what are we doing in formal training to prepare our learners for this paradigm shift.
0: Oh, and it is a paradigm shift, right? It says so much about how we think of error and what is error, and it's just it, it so much good stuff coming out of this. Okay. So you write in your introduction that you sought to, I'm going to quote, describe the learning that took place in frontline physicians who worked in the clinical learning environment or CLE amid the uncertainty posed by the height of the pandemic. So- so, what is the backstory of this paper? I'm, I'm interested. Like, was this an experience or an observation of your own during the pandemic, or did the pandemic just just bring it into relief exactly what you'd been thinking about? Like, tell me a little bit about where this paper came from.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for that question. So, as emergency medicine physicians, we we know that there is uncertainty, but we're not always cognizant of it. We're not really talking about it, but we know what to do to to navigate that. Um, and, and I think that happens a little bit more with maturation and growing and learning in the field. But with our students and with our trainees, with our residents, we were hearing really interesting things happening at the bedside when there was diagnostic uncertainty. So patient comes into the emergency department with abdominal pain. They have a history taken, an exam performed, labs are drawn, maybe a CT scan is performed. And at the end of the day, there really is no finite diagnosis to explain his, her, or their symptoms. So what happens? Well, the team would go to the to the patient's room, knock on the door, and, and sort of begin the conversation with, well, good news. There's nothing wrong with you. And sort of think about that and, and think about how that comment resonates with you. For that individual to have come to the emergency department, to be there, to sort of hear that nothing is wrong with them, yet... There are all these symptoms and things happening in the backdrop, is just completely incongruent with what needs to happen at that interchange, at that transition, at that care transition. So, this opened up our eyes a few years ago to really think about communicating diagnostic uncertainty. Um, how do we do that well? How do we do that with evidence based approaches? How do we normalize that? How do we use the correct language? How do we ensure that our patients? know what to do next, what to look out for. And that started a cascade of educational interventions for us to think about how are we building this into training? So so that opened up our eyes to a a whole host of other things that we should be training for, not just communicating uncertainty or diagnostic uncertainty, but there's prognostic uncertainty and treatment uncertainty. But then there is also how do you navigate and reconcile the uncertainty that one is dealing with in the moment? Because if we are able to study and look at and describe those things that individuals are doing as they're sort of navigating that uncertainty in real time, then we can label it, we can identify it, and we can bring it into curriculum so that we, we could train learners to upregulate those skills. This way, when they're thrusted into these clinical learning environments where there is uncertainty, they can call upon those tools. And and what we identified with COVID was this learning lab, if you will, where we could focus on the heightened uncertainty that the beginning stages of the pandemic offered us and, and to really hone in on how these physicians navigated uncertainty then.
0: So you saw an opportunity to develop a framework, um, you say, to make sense of and act in complex health systems. And you described the Marzik and Watkins model of informal and incidental learning, or IIL. Can you tell us more about that model and how informal and incidental learning in the clinical environment can be described?
1: Absolutely. So informal and incidental learning isn't really that unique of a concept. It's something that all of us sort of have experience with. So just simple terms, informal learning typically describes that learning that occurs outside of the classroom, outside of a formal learning space. takes place in the moment and takes place as gaps arise that need to be addressed, right? So that learning is informal. Incidental learning is that learning that occurs when you're doing something for which the primary purpose is not learning, right? So the learning that comes with, you know, solving a problem in the workplace. So typically, this informal and incidental learning begins with a trigger, with with a catalyst for learning. Mm -hmm. And it's oftentimes a gap between what we know, between what we can do, and what we need to be able to do, what we have to do. Right? So we enter these situations with a framing of, of how do we solve problems, typically how we've done so in the past, how we've addressed these situations in the past. Right, And these experiences influence our mental models for how we construct new experiences. Right, So we'll scan the environment, we'll scan our own internal meaning making, and we start to interpret that situation. Um, Often, we, we sort of cling to ways that we've done things in the past. If we cling too strongly to these frames, then, then neuroscience will tell us that we're going to be blind to other options, blind to other solutions that can limit our learning in the moment. Hmm. But, but if we keep our thinking open to alternatives, if to options, having a growth mindset, we're really setting ourselves up for learning right? So if we spend time learning from others, if we spend time consulting individuals who may be more experienced than us, looking at good practices and, and really experimenting with different ways of doing things, we may in fact reinterpret or reframe how we think about a new problem or a new opportunity. So that's informal and incidental learning. And, and I've really had the luxury of learning a lot about this framework from one of my mentors Dr. Victoria Marsik, who's at Teachers College. So this is the Marsik and Watkins model oh. for informal and the learning. And it, it it was a frame that really hasn't been applied into the clinical space before. Very, very replete in, 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 organi- in the organizational world and the business world, but not so much in the clinical world. And we have a lot of frameworks in the clinical world, but it just seemed like a really nice opportunity to serve as a lens for this project to to sort of see how clinical teams and how physicians really navigated uncertainty during the height of the pandemic.
0: And you also mentioned adaptive expertise. How does how does that contrast to informal and incidental
1: learning? Yeah, great question and 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 also very relevant. So I mentioned that informal and incidental learning hasn't been a framework that's been cited heavily in the medical and the clinical health professions literature. And that's because we have a lot of great frameworks clinically. And one of those is adaptive expertise. So adaptive expertise is similar, right? And for for those hearing this term for the first time, it's adaptive expertise implies being a really good problem solver, someone who can handle new and unexpected challenges pretty well. It's not just about knowing one thing well, but being able to use what you know in different situations, um, particularly new situations. Think of a chef right who can not only cook a recipe perfectly, a specific recipe, but can also create for you delicious meals out of random ingredients that that they've mm-hmm. never used before. right So they don't just rely on recipes that they know, but they can adapt and they can innovate with whatever is is available. So when you think about adaptive expertise, and I'm not an expert on this particular framework, but the literature shares that, you know, it, it relates to asking individuals, clinicians to develop their own solutions and strategies when they're able to make direct links between errors and knowledge to be learned. Right. So it's I think Merit et al. in their paper um, in 2021 describe it as, as the ability to learn new information. To, to make effective use of resources that you have available, and to invent new procedures to support learning um, and, and and new ways to problem solve and practice. Now, the reason we wanted a different framework is is because we really wanted to dive into these situations where physicians navigated uncertainty and and focus on what was going on in the moment dynamically. In that critical incident that they were immersed in during the pandemic. Now, in contrast to adaptive expertise, what informal and incidental learning does is it tries to capture the learning that's happening that's not always conscious, right? So it it acknowledges the fact that a lot of the informal and incidental learning acknowledges the fact that a lot of this learning is unconscious. And the focus for our study was to really study this. Now, that's not to say that adaptive expertise it's it is, is not conscious or unconscious or a combination. It's it's both, right? But but adaptive expertise acknowledges the fact that there's a, a large conscious effort to to learning, right? There's deliberate practice, there's there's seeking out new challenges, there's reflection on experiences, there's adapting to strategies, what worked, what didn't work. Um, And then there's also the unconscious process of adaptive expertise. But, But what we really wanted to do in this study, we just wanted to focus on that informal learning, that incidental learning, that learning that happened where physicians weren't necessarily conscious or cognizant of the fact that learning was happening. And that's why we thought that it was a novel opportunity to to bring this framework into discussion.
0: Um, so let's talk about this study. What specific questions were you hoping to address?
1: So since informal and incidental learning offers the opportunity to describe these nuances, we wanted to better understand the learning process during times of heightened uncertainty, right To offer some practical steps for the learning that happens during these moments that would offer us the opportunity to reflect on curriculum and to reflect on things that we can do in educational design. So our question really was, well, what does informal and incidental learning look like when physicians are trying to solve very, very uncertain and very complex challenges? What are the things that happen? What are the macro things that happen? What are, the, what are the micro things that happen? And if we can examine those and put a name to those, then we can kind of go back to our curriculum and say, well, we have experiences that approximates those skills, or, or we don't. And we need, to, we need to develop things that can actually prepare learners to engage in this kind of meaningful learning.
0: So uh, tell us briefly about your methods.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So this was a a qualitative study. And um, what was unique about this qualitative study is that it used the critical incident technique. Um, So it's a kind of interview where the data collection method is in the ability to draw in vivid descriptions of a phenomenon of interest as a window into getting the individual to share how they reasoned through it. So I, I, if I were to explain this, I could ask somebody, tell me about a time where you faced significant uncertainty in your work during the pandemic. And you'll sort of get an answer, like a, a know, a description or a scenario, but it's very general, very macro. So a lot of that interview gets us to get to the core of the incident. So for example, um, we heard, well, yeah, a lot. I face a lot of uncertainty seeing patients at the height of the pandemic where I really didn't know how to manage their respiratory status. Okay, well, well, well tell me about one specific time, one specific case. And then we have them dive deeper and deeper and deeper, right? So think about a picture on your, uh, on your iPhone or your Android, and you're, you're really zooming in and you're trying to see all the pixels, right? And that's what the critical incident technique is about. It's trying to see those pixels. So great. What, what were you doing in that moment? Where were you? What was different about this scenario? What were you wearing? Who was with you? what stands out about this particular patient really honing in to those nuances so that they can relive that experience and for 45 minutes those were that was our interview length we we sat down with these individuals virtually or resumed to to really share these these incidents these critical incidents and as you can imagine If you've heard people tell a story, it's not always in chronological order. You know, you might have the ending first and then the body and then the intro. And what's unique about this um, method is that the initial form of analysis is restoring that incident in chronological order using the person's, using the subject's um, words. So then you kind of put together this incident in the form of a story that kind of makes chronological sense. And then that is the data from which you're able to analyze. Um, and the next layer is kind of going in and making assertions about this incident. So after you read this story, what assertion can you make? What statement can you make? What claim can you make about what is going on here? And, and by doing that with our research team, we made several assertions about these stories, about these narratives, about these incidents, um, and we captured these assertions. And what happens afterwards is you sort of go from one incident to another incident to sort of see how these assertions measure up. Do they complement one another? Um, are they telling a larger narrative of what this experience looked like? And then you're looking for themes. And not only are you looking for themes, but you're looking for connections between these assertions. And after several iterative conversations with with our research team, we were able to sort of understand some of the nuances that that these incidents had in common. So it was my first real deep dive into qualitative research. Um, Dr. Watkins, Karen Watkins, has really done... A lot of work with the critical incident technique. And it was really a luxury to have her brain power with us in addition to sharing her work about the, um, the informal and incidental framework for learning.
0: Okay. So you conducted these series of critical incident interviews, each 45 minutes long, with um, the frontline ED and ICU physicians. And so in total, there were these seven ED and five ICU physicians, five female. Uh, with a mean of 10 years of clinical experience. Okay, so in your findings, you identified themes that you divided into three categories, and I'm just going to list them, and then maybe you can just tell us a couple of things that you uh, found within each of these categories. So first was the influence of context on decision-making and learning. The second, uh, decision-making patterns in uncertain environments. And third, Uh, IIL strategies utilized during uncertainty and complexity. So uh, let's start with the first one, the influence of context on decision-making and learning.
1: Yes, great question. Um, So lots of findings, there was a lot of data. Um, Now, we found the one thing that stood out from our work was, was the context. Uh, our, our, the physician subjects, the physician participants that we interviewed, were really at the at the core of their experiences, obviously because they're living through this experience. So naturally, they're at the core. And and what we found was there was a lot of decision burden weigh, weighing on them um, during um, the height of the pandemic. A lot of t- a lot of members of the team were relying on them to sort of identify what to do next, what treatment strategies to em- to 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 try out so what was palpable was his decision burden and this decision burden came up in several contexts right so situational context um, being in a situation that was unfamiliar to them relational context situations where there were different members of a team teams change daily um, there were individuals where they really didn't know very well, individuals that they couldn't communicate to well because they were wearing personal protective equipment and they couldn't hear one another. There was the emotional context that that came with these incidents, um, uh, and with that, getting at their relationship, their internal relationship with uncertainty, and a lot of that percolated in our conversations with them, and then the physical context. Um uh, the 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 actual space that they were working in, um, the reconfiguring of spaces, uh, their the the PPE that they were expected to don. So as they they told us these narratives and these incidents, there were four contexts that they were situated in as they were navigating this decision burden, and it came up in 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 situational contexts, in relational contexts with people and their team members an emotional context between what they were trying to reconcile with their feelings of uncertainty, and then, of course, the physical context of where they were in in the moment.
0: Okay, let's move on to the second, uh, decision-making patterns in uncertain environments.
1: Yeah, so as, as as the physician was at the core of this, navigating this this decision burden, whether it was in, in a context where it was an uncertain situation or uncertain relationships or the emotional Baggage that came with navigating uncertainty or those physical contexts, there were there were patterns for decision making that that we were able to identify in almost all of our conversations with our physician participants. Um, There was this approach about simplifying the problem, whether cognizant or not, our participants um, really started off by breaking down the problem that they were dealing with into its basic ingredients, right? Then there was also looking for patterns, you know, pattern recognition. Um, Were there um, any similarities in in what they were seeing and what they were seeing yesterday and the day before? And there was a lot of cross-checking that was taking place, cross-checking their own knowledge by consulting social media, by consulting whatever resources were shared anecdotally, but then also being able to create a climate in that space For individuals to cross-check with one another in a way that was psychologically safe, so that there was the permission there to speak up, to second-guess, to ask questions, to ask for help, and what we found that was really, really um, humbling was this um, presence of relying on physician, on, on ICU physicians and emergency medicine physicians, really relying on their nurse counterparts, and 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 setting up the the permission, more so than before, than pre-pandemic, for their decisions to be called into question and to ask for help. And, and we found that those were three core patterns for decision making that came through in our in our analysis of our data.
0: Now how about the third? Um, the strategies utilized during uncertainty and complexity.
1: Yeah. So there were definitely patterns for learning that we felt influenced Um, the patterns for decision-making. Earlier I mentioned consulting alternative sources of information. There was really nothing evidence-based at the time and calling into question things that were on social media, anecdotal cases of of narratives of physicians who have taken care of COVID positive patients the day before. There was a lot of trial and error trying things and seeing what results were engendered by, by those trials more so than before, it almost seemed as if there was permission to try out different things and to expect failure, but be able to pivot on the fly. Another thing that we saw was um, something that we termed poking at the periphery, sort of knowing what to do, but in contrast to trial and error, where the experimentation was a little bit more deliberate, maybe trying out things a little bit more differently this time. Well, in this case, I'm going to try intubating with this size tube than before because I'm going to try it. I'm going to see if this yields different results. So definitely looking at alternative sources of information, trial and error, and a lot of what we call poking at the periphery of a problem and exploring that problem and having a conversation about that problem. So in earnest, there was a lot of learning and, and practices for learning that were happening during these scenarios, which essentially influenced the decision-making patterns that that came to life in, in our conversations with them.
0: So how would you summarize these findings overall, and what do you think we should take away from this study?
1: At the end of the day, physicians really rely on various sources for decision-making, um, when they're navigating uncertain and complex situations, right? They're looking at prior knowledge and they're looking at experiences and how they measure up to to new experiences. They're looking for consensus, um, consensus among their team members, consensus in, our, in their with their patients and, and their patients' families. Um, they're looking for literature, you know, at times anecdotal, um, all within the fundamental, you know, principle of trying to do no harm. And and at the end of the day, as they're making these decisions, there's a lot of informal and incidental learning that, that, that comes through. And this is characterized by, you know, engaging in really thoughtful trial and error. It comes up as poking at the periphery. So by exploring the edges of a problem to really create new knowledge and, and for true informal and incidental, incidental learning to happen, there's a lot of leveraging of past experiences to inform new situations. So what does this mean in terms of takeaways? You know, I think there are opportunities to incorporate these strategies, you know, these specific actions into medical educational programs that that can enhance our students' familiarity with managing uncertainty and at the same time being able to equip our students with the necessary skills to really take that uncertainty And use it as a catalyst for learning in clinical settings. And that's exactly what happened with our frontline physicians who we interviewed. They were able to use that uncertainty as a catalyst for learning, where it was named explicitly, where it was discussed. And if we can create that permission for our learners to to use uncertainty for learning, to say, I don't know, and to be able to use some of these strategies, these patterns for decision-making and these patterns for learning, then then I think there's an opportunity to make our curricula, curricula more relevant and more empowering for our learners.
0: What comes next?
1: Well, uh, great question. Uh, I think our our findings from this study really can offer us a lens to see what we're doing in our curriculum to, to prepare our students for the kind of learning that they want to be doing. Um, so we're now using it as a lens in in our periodic curricular Um, Analyses to see what are we doing from the lens of uncertainty, and what we are doing is we're using findings, our our empirical findings from this research, to inform specific interventions. Now our curriculum is a case based learning curriculum at, at at our medical school, so for the first two years there's a lot of CBL, and we're building in these experiences in these specific skills to introduce them on day one as things that they should be talking about. So it's coming up in CBL. We're building these in explicitly into our simulations. So we're trying to take a more longitudinal, vertically integrated approach into A, examining our curriculum, but at the same time, building in experiences from these findings. And and of course, building in findings from other similar studies that have explored the same phenomenon but but in terms of what we plan to do with our data the, in our post study analysis when we went back to the data we found that there's a lot of humility that comes up in these incidents and what we haven't done and what a lot of research hasn't done before is explore is exploring the intersection of humility and navigating uncertainty and we're really excited to partner with some leaders in the humility space to see what role humility plays in, in physicians as they navigate uncertainty in clinical practice. So, so a few next steps that we're really excited about.
0: That sounds amazing. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about this paper. It's been such a pleasure.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much for the invitation and really looking forward to future conversations.
0: Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access subscribe to this podcast on iTunes at AEM Early Access, all one word. Don't forget to read the full text of this article available open access from the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal for a limited time. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Gita Pensa, and
1: we'll see you next time.